This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is Creative Control. I'm your host, Casey Finey. Each week, I'll be unpacking the driving forces and people shaping the creator economy and what it all means for its future. And this episode is a little different than usual. Geralt doesn't notice the loneliness looming over him. He is on the second day of his eastbound trip, and he is driving past a city called Oxenford. The voice is warm and musical, and there is both joy and sorrow in it. A long time traveling. He learns that the voice belongs to a music professor named Julian Alfred Pankratz. The students call him Professor Pankratz, but his friends call him Yaskier. From then on, Geralt moves heaven and earth to arrange his routes so that he passes by Oxenford between two and four in the morning. Yaskier blurts out that he's playing a show at the local coffee shop the very next day. Geralt acts without thinking. He pulls over immediately and finds a cheap motel room. The kind of the scratchy blankets, nothing but fuzz on the television. He has to find out. He has to know whether Yaskier really wants to meet him. He has to be brave just one more time. So I didn't know what to expect, but it wasn't that. Uh, that was interesting. Um, Avery, what was that? <laughs> well, uh, that was fanfic. Mm. Yes. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is Avery Miles, one of our <laughs> podcast producers, who's here to take us on a journey through the many worlds of fandom and whatever that just was. <laughs> well, hi. Excited to be here as your fandom tour guide. If you're a fan of The Witcher, you'll recognize those characters, Geralt and Yaskier. It's a book series that became a video game and then a TV show. And in the original, Geralt is a super-powered monster killer. <laughs> but in this fanfic, which is an alternate universe fanfic, he is a long-haul truck driver. Wait, I have a question. I raised my hand. How do you go from being a super-powered monster killer to a long-haul truck driver? <laughs> How do you not? It's the better <laughs> question, enough. Casey. How do you not? <laughs> I mean, you've seen Joyride. That was a long-haul truck driver who was a super-powered <laughs> killer. So <laughs> I retract my question. They go hand I get in hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you'll you'll find out later why why they're important and like how this all kind of plays into our episode today. But as an overview, we're going to be talking about fandoms for books and TV shows, movies, especially sci-fi, fantasy, anime, and romance. So think Harry Potter and Star Trek and Sailor Moon. Mm, I did enjoy Sailor Moon back <laughs> in the day. I did. A very specific English dub of it, but that's fine. I won't nerd out. I won't nerd out in the studio right now. It's fine. It's fine. No, nerd out. It's all about fandom here. Once upon a time in my life, I became completely obsessed with something. So, oh, oh Casey, brace yourself. Okay, proceed. My first journey into fandom was through Titanic when I was 10 years old. That tracks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can actually see that. I mean, you and every other like girl that age, I mean, and some boys, but like I remember when that movie came out mm -hmm. and it was like I don't ever recall that kind of collective 
lust, <laughs> pre-adolescent <laughs> lust that people had for that movie. Oh my so God. yes, I mean that. I don't know what that says about you, but that that, that tracks. <laughs> well, yeah, I can accept that I was a bit basic, but I will say this. I was obsessed with it, but I didn't go so far as to write fanfic about it or do any kind of, well, all right. That we know of. (laughs) (laughs) My journals. Or I didn't do fan art with, like, Leo and Kate, you know, which you would expect to see. I was kind of obsessed with the ship itself. That tracks even further. (laughs) 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 Oh, I love this Avery lore. Continue. Yeah, well, I actually got in trouble at school once for drawing. I took up the entire chalkboard, and I drew the entire ship. And I, like, talked to my friends about it. But I didn't, you know, go online. I didn't, like, join forums. I didn't join any groups about it. It was just me and my thing, right? Because this was in 97, and, yes, we did have the Internet, and, like, there was dial-up and whatnot, but it just didn't extend that far for me. Ever since then, I, ha- I really haven't been a huge fan of, like, any particular show or book. I mean, temporarily, yes, I'll, like, dive into it. But what really fascinates me about fandom is that absolute passion of it and, like, what brings people together, the community and their collective obsession over specific characters or plot lines. Or ships. <laughs> Well, yeah, obviously. (laughs) And then, like, you know, just, like, creativity that's born out of that. Like, people create communities and they build families around it. And I really wanted to get into why fandom is so meaningful and powerful, but also, you know, dive into why it can be really hard to navigate. Okay. I mean, as someone who admittedly has never read fanfic, this is all kind of new to me, but I'm starting to see the allure. Uh, But I'm curious to hear from you, Avery. How does this relate to the creator economy exactly? Okay. Well, in the most basic way, all of these people are creators. They're writers, they're artists, they're crafters. You know, the list goes on. Also, fandoms grow and change along with some of the same platforms that are central to the creator economy. Hmm. So I want to take us through the hurdles that fan creators deal with in actually making money. But largely, let's look at the side of the creator economy that's all driven by this passion for storytelling and imagination. Because I think there are some valuable insights for other creators. I bet. Yeah. So where do we start with all of this? Well, first, we'll look at why people are drawn to particular fandoms and the communities that they find there. And through that, how being a part of fandom gives creators the freedom to challenge restrictive norms put on us by society. And also, most importantly, have a little bit of fun. (laughs) We like fun. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, when you're excluded from a space, you build your own space. And fandom has been such an amazing place. Rebecca Rodriguez-Lynn is also known as Descarada Online, and she's the author of the fanfic that we heard at the beginning of the episode. The name I use to write under is Descarada, and that means like, you know, it can depend different on the country, but it's like shameless or brazen or kind of cheeky. Descarada, or Des, lives in Southern California, and she works as a hospital administrator and political science professor. But when she's not doing that, she's writing fanfic for The Witcher, Our Flag Means Death, and some other favorite shows. Before I started writing fanfic, I was trying to write a novel, and I, you know, I read this book about creating habits. It was like, I had to force myself to write every day, and I need to 
put you know i even got like a little unicorn coin bank and you know because i read atomic habits and you have to reward yourself and blah 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 it was like a process it was a effort and then when i started writing fanfic i couldn't stop writing according to des the witcher fandom is massive and largely cishet white men but there are pockets where she's found a very close community and as a queer writer those spaces allow her to write themes from her life inside of the witcher world and then witchers are also because of this mutation process a lot of the the religious leaders kind of say, oh, they're abominations. And so mages and people in power are very quick to use that to work up people to turn them against witchers. And that's something queer people very, very, very much can identify with. It's like when times get hard, the power structure takes all this religious fear and distrust of you, puts kerosene on it, and turns them against you. Lots of people in fandom communities are also drawn in by seeing themselves represented in ways that mainstream media doesn't. I have anxiety and depression, and also I'm queer and probably neurodivergent. That's Salix, a fan art creator who also loves The Witcher. The only place that I had growing up and for much of my adult life where there were other folks that shared a lot of those qualities, particularly the queer community, was in fandom. And so, especially back when there weren't that many shows or books or movies that had queer relationships, it was just the fans that were kind of creating versions that included that. And that was, yeah, my only connection to seeing that life could be different than what I had grown up seeing. Salix considers themselves a creator who is inspired by other storytellers, and fittingly, they met Des through the Witcher fandom. The friendship between both of them highlights another Witcher theme that resonates for queer fans, making your own family. Unfortunately, a lot of queer people have the experience of being rejected by their families. Let me be specific about that, by their parents. And they tend to sort of build their own communities. And so I think when you have this theme of found family, that is very attractive to a queer audience. Kind of similar to some of the characters in The Witcher. They're all cut off from their families and they go through all of these medical experiments that transforms their bodies. Actually, witchers in general face a lot of discrimination and they sort of occupy a very marginalized status in society. So you just have this motley crew of found mm. family. And that theme really resonates for people of many other marginalized identities. In fact, Des thinks that most fanfiction starts with fans dealing with some type of exclusion. And then you, you go, okay, we'll build our own space. We're going to take a quick break, and when we're back, we'll get into some of the history of fandom and how it's evolved. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. So 
So we just heard from Des and Salix about the importance of community within fandom, especially for queer fans who really just need a space to imagine a different life, which I find really touching, and I can definitely see how meaningful this all is. So where are people finding each other? Well, for Des and Salix, mostly on Tumblr. And Des's fic is on a site called AO3, which we'll get to later. Okay. So over the years, the platforms have gone from kind of basic designs, like think GeoCities or LiveJournal, into like really complex systems like Fandom.com and, and Wattpad. And I think when people hear about fandoms, they also think about cosplay and LARPing and conferences. I mean, there is a con for everything. Right, right. So those are probably the most public examples where you probably think of people dressed up as stormtroopers and and Wonder Woman. And big events like Comic-Con came about in the 1970s based on popular sci-fi series like Star Wars. And that's when Francesca Coppa became an early fan. I'm really dating myself. At the end of Empire Strikes Back, right, there's a moment where Obi-Wan says to Yoda, oh no, he was our last hope. And Yoda says, no, there is another. We all know how that worked out. It was a huge cliffhanger. Everybody was like, who is the other? I mean, what's going on? Right. Francesca is a professor at Muhlenberg College and a founder of the Organization for Transformative Works, also known as OTW. People were writing fic around questions, and they were exploring the universe in ways that, like, the industry has now tried to do, I think, less well, frankly. OTW runs the site Archive of Our Own, fondly known as AO3. It's an archive that houses content from over 57,000 fandoms. That's including almost 11 million works of fanfic. Also, the OTW is a nonprofit run by volunteers because it's not trying to make a profit. <laughs> and I think a lot of times people don't know this about the Organization for Transformative Works or about the archive of our own. Or that AO3 won a Hugo Award in 2019 for its contributions to sci-fi and fantasy. The value of the AO3 is in the archive of stories that are written by people out of their hearts. There's no other value to it <laughs> than the value of the literature that we love. AO3 is a pretty unique archive, but if we take a semi-quick look back into the history of fandom, we'll see that people have been borrowing from each other and getting inspired by existing stories for a long time. We don't have as many records of it, but there are some. Like some of the earliest fan art comes from Gulliver's Travels, written back in 1726. Not to be too graphic, but the Met has some very explicit etchings that people did of Lilliputians. If you're really curious, we'll put the link in our episode description. Then there's Pamela, a novel about a lady's maid who had to fend off her boss's advances. Another novelist flipped that and wrote a fanfic where the main character actually lures her boss in to steal his money, giving her a lot more agency. It was called Shamala. And then there's the legend of King Arthur and Camelot. In Camelot. This comes from medieval texts that were copied and copied and spawned countless novels like The Once and Future King, The Mists of Avalon, and movies like Camelot in the 60s, even up to the BBC show called Merlin, which, by the way, had a pretty sizable fandom. So even though we don't have internet archives from past centuries, much of the world's classic works looked a lot like fanfic. It's just that only people with money or social class could really publish something. And now, with the internet, of course, it's way easier. 
Francesca Coppa got her start in fanfic when she was young, and she's seen quite an evolution since then. All of fandom was really on paper. You would do things like join the Star Wars fan club and they would send you stuff in the mail. They would send you patches or blueprints or pictures. And for me, my first writing of fanfic was all analog. It was on paper. And it was a game that I played with real friends that I knew. And we wrote stories and we wrote them collaboratively. In fact, we used the mail. The mail was so important to early fandom, actually. One of us would write a piece of story and then... Uh, send it to the next person and they would continue it and then the next person would continue it and and then it would get back to you and you'd have stuff to read and something to contribute. Fans were some of the earliest people on the internet. Alt-Star Trek TV was one of the earliest news group on Usenet. And so really the minute the internet started, fans were there. And in the sort of early 90s, when I got on the internet, all of a sudden I was like, oh, I know what this is. These are my people. Like, they're all here. For Francesca, the early 80s was a really exciting time for sci-fi and fantasy because the first Star Trek movie and then Wrath of Khan and Search for Spock were all coming out during that same period. And you had Spielberg was really operating at full force. So you had E.T. and you had Raiders of the Lost Ark. But you needed a grown-up to help you to write a check or take you, you know, to a convention. And then a lot of other kinds of activities, you would have to be a grown-up because if you were going to get yourself to a convention, you needed to buy plane tickets or book into a hotel. But yeah, I had a very analog experience of fandom. But this analog experience also fostered some of the fan activism that we now take for granted. Rebecca Williams is an associate professor at the University of Wales. I think the original Star Trek is where, again, a lot of the things that we still see now come about. So when the series was cancelled, we see a huge kind of letter-writing campaign from fans into the network to try and get them to reverse that decision. Uh, We start to see the emergence of the creation of fan art, fan fiction, in the 70s getting circulated through fanzines. So people printing those, sending them by post to each other, obviously way before the internet comes along. We also, I think, see the emergence of fan events like conventions. They're they're very small, kind of very local meetings in some cases. San Diego Convention opened yesterday and already it's in high gear. Now there's San Diego Comic Con, New York Comic Con. And a billion others. Wonder Woman, Zatanna, Poison Navy. And outside of that, fans can correspond and meet up much easier these days, using platforms like Tumblr and Discord, Reddit, Twitter, and the list goes on. And this makes getting into fandom way easier and much more accessible. But even with fandoms expanding and diversifying in stories, there's still a particular type of fan who often holds the most power. So it tends to still be white, fairly sort of middle class, usually educated kind of women who do tend to to dominate those spaces. And one of the things that's been quite interesting to see over the past few years is people sort of challenging the idea that these are places that are equal to all kind of all women equally, because they're, they're not. There are things that are happening there. I think it's that male fans have tended to engage in different ways. So there's still, I think, a bit of a split between the creativity that we tend to think that, that female fan, women fans engage in, which does tend to still be dominated, whereas men are still associated with things like collecting. Quick note, collecting memorabilia is known as curatorial fandom, which describes the organizational side of it, while transformative fandom, on the other hand, is building off of and challenging the original material. 
We talked about why Des and Salix liked The Witcher so much. That's why it's so significant that they found their space in which to question the very violent and bloody storylines that the series is known for. I think for a lot of people writing fan fiction that's very transformative, it's about taking disappointments with characters, with relationships, and turning that into something that maybe represents you or your own identity more clearly. So a lot, a lot of fan fiction is about shipping, so supporting different kind of character relationships and writing them into relationships that they wouldn't necessarily have in the TV program or in a film, for example. There is a difference in the way a lot of people interact with shipping in that context. Some kind of go, I like this pairing together and that's it. And I remember someone, one of my online friends going, I don't understand how people can ship more than one couple. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. But I think a lot of it is a reflection of how, like, the role romance plays in our own emotional lives, you know? I have a little bit of distance from it. There are some shows where, yeah, there's only one pairing that I will like, and I don't really get any of the other ones. But for the most part, yeah, it's like I'm taking paper dolls. I'm taking, okay, I, I really thought about this character, and I've thought about this other character, and I'm just trying different outfits. I'm it's like I've got a little science kit, chemistry kit, you know, and I'm going, oh, this person has this kind of needs and passions and, and traumas and loves and experiences. Let's toss them in into the beaker with this other person or let's try this other person and see what happens. Just trying on all the different outfits and seeing how they fit. So Des says she's a multi-shipper. What is that? I do not know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> so shipping comes from relationshiping. So you think of a relationship between two people, you see these two characters, and you really want to create a relationship between them. It doesn't necessarily have to be in canon. So say in Harry Potter, he ends up with Ginny. Okay, but you decide you don't want to see that play out, and you decide you want Harry to end up with Draco instead. So you could ship Harry and Ginny, and you could create a whole kind of imaginary scene, plot, story for them, but you could also ship Harry and Draco, and that could be your one true pairing, which means you only ship them, okay? But Des is a multi-shipper, which means she will ship Harry and Draco. She will ship Harry and Ron. So for you and Titanic, it's Kate and the boat. Is that what we're doing? Do I understand shipping correctly? Do I understand shipping correctly? Are you shipping the ship? (laughs) Thank you. I shipped the ship. I shipped the ship. (laughs) Very funny. (laughs) Thank you. Well, what TV show do you love, Casey? Right now, I've been re-watching Bob's Burgers from the beginning. Oh, wow. Yeah. Bobby. It's, it's, what, it's what I need for myself, Lynn. <laughs> <laughs> it's what I need right now. Okay, so take that show. Who would be your OTP in that world? It would have to be Bob and Marshmallow. What? Which fans of the show will know. Marshmallow is like a big character, but she is, I want to say, they never really describe her as like a trans woman, but like she, I mean, she is a trans woman. Um, and there's, there is a connection between them. Uh-huh. And it's always like a running joke between them being like, you know, hey, Marshmallow, hey, Bobby. Like <laughs> every time it's this running joke. And it, to the point where one episode where Marshmallow is actually upset and like Bob's like, hey, Marshmallow, and she's like, mm-mm. Oh. And so it's like, there is something there. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah. I So anyway, I would love to see them together. I think that would be really sweet. Aww. Well, so, yeah, taking that sort of inclination, for Des, that's what she's doing in her fanfic. So remember that story we heard at the beginning? Highway Angel? Yes, exactly. So Geralt and Yaskier, 
that's Des's favorite ship in the Witcher fandom. And it all comes from this one scene. Now, now, stop your boorish grunts of protest. It is one night bodyguarding your very best friend in the whole wide world. How hard could it be? I'm not your friend. Oh, oh, really? Oh, you usually just let strangers rub chamomile onto your lovely bottom. Yeah, well, yeah exactly. That's what I thought. The tub scene, there just seemed to be so much longing on Yaskier's part. Like, I think I literally yelled at my TV, like, oh, come on, you know? <laughs> So some quick fanfic terminology. Male-male pairings are referred to as slash or yaoi, and female-female pairings are called femslash or yuri. So writing characters into same-sex relationships, certain fanfiction that might change the, the gender of different characters or might change kind of the race or the ethnic background of characters to kind of race bend it. And so a lot of that, I think, is about wanting better representation. I think it's about connection with characters as well. When I watch fiction, you know, I'm having this really intense empathy response towards the characters. And a lot of times I watch dark fantasy or even horror or something. And these characters, I'm feeling all of this for, you know, they're suffering and you never get to see them sort of um, heal or have a nice cup of tea or have a hug or whatever. So I think part of what I do is sort of her comfort, writing all the emotional bits, whether it is romance, whether it's sex, whether it's just comfort. If you're not happy with the ending of something, you can rewrite that ending. You can have it suit your needs a little bit more. It is like a dance party. It's a little bit like, come on, you know, like we don't care if you can dance, like just come on, you know. And I think ideologically, more people need to be encouraged to make art. I just love anything that grown adults do just for love. You become an adult and people expect you to not have fun anymore, to not play anymore. And especially in, you know, under capitalism that a lot of us are dealing with, every moment of your time should be monetized. And especially if you're a woman, you should always be caretaking someone else. You should be changing a diaper, you should be ironing a shirt, you know what I mean? And so fanfic is one of these things that's, ah, oh, I just freaking love it to see adults doing something for love and for fun and not apologizing for it. And that's it. And getting to really the freedom to play. Getting the freedom to play. I really like that. Do you feel like you have the freedom to play, Avery? I do. Occasionally, yes. When? Well, I mean, I have creative hobbies outside of work. I think that's really important. But, you know, when things come to online forums and these communities gather in a decentralized space, there is potential for conflict. And, you know, how you experience your fandom community kind of depends a lot on certain things like identity and power. So in our next episode, we're going to go deeper into what happens within those communities. And we're going to look at how people's experiences can be great, but also potentially damaging. Yikes. Nobody likes to think about the fact that fandom makes some people feel good and makes some people feel like absolute crap because of the hierarchies and the power structures that people aren't interested in unpacking. They're busy going, it's for escapism. And it's like, okay, well, I've gotten death threats. And every time I'm even a bit visible, people rush to try and ruin my life. Yikes. 
We'll hear more about that soon enough. Well, Avery, thank you so much. This was great. You're welcome. (laughs) Fast Company podcasts are produced by Avery Miles, Blake Odom, (laughs) and Julia Shu. Mixing and sound design is by Nicholas Torres. Our executive producer is Joshua Christensen. 